Um, good evening, everybody. Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to ACCA on this very fine day. Um, and um, thank you for joining us for the Forerunner Symposium in anticipation of ACCA's summer season exhibition, Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism. Unfinished Business is the second in a series of big picture exhibitions focusing on contemporary arts relationship to wider social, cultural and political contexts. I'd firstly like to sincerely acknowledge the Boomerang, sovereign custodians and owners of the land upon which we meet, along with Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and we extend our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people who join us this evening. Unfinished business has been conceived to animate critical, although underrepresented practices and debates within contemporary Australian art and society. It explores a diverse scope of feminist art practices, including painting, performance, photography and film, to community engagement and cultural activism. Focusing on the dynamic formal invention and social engagement of feminist artists, strategies and analyses of gender identity and representation, intersectional politics, and practices which embrace performative codes, text and media technologies, humour and critique. The exhibition is being developed by a curatorial team that includes ACCA's senior curator, Annika Christensen, working in collaboration with Paola Bella, Wemba Wemba, and Gunajmara artist, curator and academic at Victoria University, Julie Ewington, curator, writer, and broadcaster, and former head of Australian art at the Queensland Art Gallery and Gallery of Modern Art, Vicky McInnes, managing editor, Art and Australia, and research development fellow at the Victorian College of the Arts, and Elvis Richardson, artist and founder of Countess. It's now 50 years since Vivian Bin's Vajden's exhibition at Waters Gallery in Sydney introduced what was then termed central core imagery into the visual lexicon, affirming the power of women's sexuality and the image of the vagina dentata, which engendered a sense of anxiety amongst the patriarchy. It is 42 years since the International Year of Women in 1975, which saw the galvanising of a then nascent feminist art movement through the establishment of a number of influential collectives, including the Women's Art Register in Melbourne in 1975, and in the following year, the launch of LIP, a journal of women in the visual arts in Melbourne, and the Women's Art Movement in Adelaide. Lucy Lippard's visit to Australia in 75 was instrumental in energising these developments and coincided with the development of significant exhibitions and contributions to art history and academia, such as Janine Burke's Australian Women Artists, 1840-1940 at the Ewing and George Payton Galleries at Melbourne University and the Women Show, organised by Julie Ewington and others in Adelaide in 1977. Feminism's influence on art and society has been enduring and profound reshaping contemporary art practice in Australia and internationally, not to mention wider social relations and discourse. Despite many gains, there is still much to be done, with feminism enjoying renewed and timely public interest in Australia and internationally, evidenced by Julia Gillard's now famous misogyny speech of 2012 and the Women's March in January this year, which saw an estimated five million demonstrators worldwide take to the streets to advocate for transformational social change. Closer to home, Elvis Richardson's project, The Countess Report, has gathered empirical data to expose patterns of gender inequality and ageism in the visual arts, graphically revealing the underrepresentation of women in museum collections and exhibition programs, and in publishing and editorial contexts, which reflects wider structural inequalities related to women's employment, income, and the division of labor, and the representation of women in the media. And there remains the shocking levels of domestic violence and sexual abuse, which have been at the forefront of conversations nationally and internationally, thinking of Rosie Batty, Jill Maher, and the recent groundswell around the hashtag of MeToo. One of the slogans from the Women's March protest proclaimed, 
I can't believe I still have to protest this fucking shit. And this is a sentiment which has been elaborated in new work by Sarah Goffman and taken up by Vicky McInnes in her catalogue essay. As a result of the critiques of representation that feminist practice and discourse has engendered, feminism itself has been subject to considerable critique and debate, opening up to wider considerations of class, race, ethnicity, and non-binary gender positions, and to positions such as Aileen Morton Robinson's compelling analysis of the whiteness of Australian feminism and its effect on Indigenous women, a subject which Paola Bella may address this evening. So adopting a collaborative polyphonic form which encourages diverse voices, practices and debates, Unfinished Business will reflect on some of these developments and the idea of feminisms as plural, presenting new commissions and recent work alongside selected historical projects, programs of film and performance, and a new publication with contributions by art historians, artists, curators and theorists. The exhibition is not intended as a survey. Rather, the title might suggest intergenerational dialogues, a passing of the baton from one generation to the next, and a primary focus on the contemporary context and the unfinished business of today. We're especially pleased to kick off the program with this evening's panel, and we'll be hosting further programs, public programs, performances, lectures, and events on the opening weekend in December and throughout February and March in 2018. For this evening's forerunner, we're very pleased to welcome four wonderful contributors. Professor Anne Marsh is a Professorial Research Fellow at the Victorian College of the Arts at the University of Melbourne, whose work focuses on performance art, photography, feminist art history and theory. Anne was a participant in the women's art movement in Adelaide in the 1970s and has worked extensively as a performance artist and subsequently academic, performing, researching, writing and teaching feminist art practices and histories extensively over the past 30 years. Anne is currently leading an ARC Discovery Research Project focusing on feminism and art in Australia since 1970, and is also convening a major performance and residency program over the summer months called Doing Feminism, Sharing the World, which will also culminate in a major conference uh, in February 2018 titled Women, Art and Feminism in Australia since 1970. This evening, Anne's presenting a paper which introduces her research on feminism and the arts since 1970, and which will serve as a backdrop and foundation for a wider discussion discussion with participating artists and curators involved with Unfinished Business. So it's also a great pleasure to uh, welcome and introduce Atong Atem, who's a South Sudanese artist and writer, whose work explores post-colonial practices in the diaspora, the relationship between public and private spaces, and the politics of looking and being looked at. And Atong is currently making new photographic work for the exhibition. Paola Bala is a Wemba Wemba and Gunajmara artist, curator and academic, Victorian University and a member of the curatorial team working on the project. Paola was also co-curator co of Sovereignty at ACCA last summer and her work currently features in New Matriarch at ACE Open in Adelaide as part of Tenanti. Emily Floyd is an artist who has shown widely internationally and was sub subject of two major monographic survey exhibitions at the NGV and Hardy in 2015 along with her representation in Oqui in Weasel's Venice Biennale of the same year. And for unfinished business, Emily is working with a legendary design luminary, Mary Featherston, on the Round Table, a sculptural installation and discursive gathering space at the heart of the exhibition, which is inspired by the example of feminist collectives, editorial groups, and community consciousness raising. I'd like to thank all of our speakers in advance and to welcome them, um, and also to thank ACCA's Curator of Public Programs, Annabelle Lacroix, and also Annika Christensen for their contribution to tonight's proceedings. 
Annabelle will have a microphone available during question time, so please do join in, um, in the conversation. So without further ado, I'd first like to introduce Professor Anne Marsh. Just shift the slide. Hope I'm going the right way. Oh yes, we don't. We know about that. Ah, that's better. Okay, I have to put my glasses on. Wow, what a big audience! How fantastic. Um, thank you, Max, for that uh, introduction. It's a real pleasure to be here, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation we're going to have after I've delivered this paper. The paper takes about 20 minutes, so it's not too, in, too, 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 too um, tedious, let's put it like that. Sometimes it can be tedious. So what I'm going to do is to run through what I think are some of the feminist positions in art and theory that um, have got us to where we are now and say a few things about kind of what I think about them. So to kick off, I'm not going to talk to the slides um, a lot. I'm just going to, I know it's, no, it's terrible to use art like this, but I do refer to them in the paper and it will become obvious to you. I talk about this one later. In all of them I've tried to put what the medium is, unless it's obvious. Um, or it's a photograph. So if it's not, it doesn't say it's a painting, it's a photograph. Um, the state of um, the art world and of feminism in the 21st century ushers in different ways of doing political activism, cultural work and theory. The intergenerational aspects of feminism and how this is being enacted enacted in the visual arts in recent years represents a refreshing change from an earlier perception of waves of feminist theory that tended to privilege the new. More recent debate around the generations seeks to appreciate feminist values and achievements across the generations. There are several things that may have influenced this change. In the art world, uh, process work is once again being acclaimed as conceptual, politically engaged and experimental. And the contemporary art market, reflecting the experience economy, is finding ways for clients to buy and collect process-based works. On a more scholarly edge, feminism has become an academic organism and is debating some of the most profound issues of our times. Feminism now is more intersectional as it reaches beyond its white middle-class privilege and others more fully engaged with race, ethnicity and non-binary gender positions take feminism on as their own. Some would say, and once did say, that feminism is a praxis, it has its roots in activism. Others might say that doing feminism is a, is a way of being in relation to the world, and that's something I'm trying to tease out in the residency program over the summer. Got to get a man in. So 
In terms of feminism and the arts, it's important to understand that much contemporary visual art practice by male and female artists since the 1970s is informed by or reacts to feminism. Um, Jeff Wall's picture of woman I'm using here, but I could also use somebody like Victor Bergen's Office at Night. Uh, these images analyse the gaze within a feminist discourse. Enough men. Okay. Many of the debates underlining the postmodern period centred around issues of representation, where race, ethnicity, gender, and sexuality entered new ar arenas of critical discourse. Destiny Deacon, of course, a major protagonist. Um, we could see people such as Fiona Foley, Destiny Deacon and Tracy Moffat as very strong intersectional protagonists, as are the younger generation like Sarah Jane Norman on the left hand, uh, right hand side, or the older generation, Elizabeth Gerksakis, or the younger generation, Nassim Nassar, or the older generation, Eugenia Raskopoulos, or the younger generation, Zygdim Ademir. The gaze informed the works of thousands of artists as gender stereotypes were unpicked, surveillance was politicised and personalised, and issues around desire were seriously and playfully espoused through art. Caroline Williams, who you see there, Anne Ferrum with this major piece that was very significant, but also people like Marilyn Fersky, Fair Sky, Pat Brasington, the list of women artists is just on and on and on. The body as a gendered body was centre stage not only in performance art um, and in photography and video, but also in more conventional media such as painting and printmaking. I love Caroline Williams. What is it? Man looks at something. It's <laughs> oh, the body. The body as representation ranged over critical positions as theories of the abject, trauma, affect and analyses of the psychosocial subject jostled with a tidal wave of identity politics as postmodernism engaged with pluralism. The individual was decentered, cut up, tortured, remembered, deconstructed, forgotten and sabotaged in a multiple of, of ways. I'm just showing these two examples. When discourse around the postmodern started to dry up, we entered into a new world of the posthuman and the post-feminist. Donna Haraway, at the forefront of post-human feminism, famously claimed in 1987 that she'd rather be a cyborg than a goddess. A little later, new materialism, which arises as a variety of responses to the ecological crisis, the perceived neglect of the nature biology split in feminist scholarship, and the new advances in quantum physics, jostled with the decentered technologically and biologically enhanced post-human and claimed that the human being is much part um, is part of a much wider relation with other species and the ecological terrain that she inhabits. 
feminist physicist Karen, Karen Barad, who champions matter and the intelligence of nature, compels us to think seriously about our place in the world. What is clear from all this is that we have moved forward with a backward glance to the ecological concerns of previous generations. This return to thinking seriously about matter, nature and biology through quantum physics is a welcome pause for many people who felt stifled by the linguistic turns and the cultural turns and the, all the other turns that we had over the last 40 years. But I think the most, the most importantly for feminism, it effectively reopens dialogues around sexual difference that have been closed down by structuralist and post-structuralist theory which prioritise language and representation. Thank you, Max, for mentioning Vibins Vajdins. Two versions here. In Australia, the work that signifies the power of the central core or essential or essentialist female, I'm using that in inverted commas because it got so much critique in the POMO period. So the work that, that signifies this uh, female essential body in Australia has to be Vivian Binz's painting, Vag Dens, which was first shown, as Max said, at Waters Gallery in 1967. And the art historian Deborah Clark argues that Binns anticipated a key aspect of feminist art practice, the central core imagery, internationally with this adoption of essential imagery. So the focus on women's nature, her body and personal experience was important in the late 60s and, 19, and in 1970s feminism. This certainly had affiliations with the countercultural movement, sexual liberation, and a return to nature. But running parallel with this was the new left and various forms of Marxism, Maoism, Trotskyism, socialism, anarchy, and feminism with any mixture between them in varying degrees. So one was a Maoist, anarchist, Trotskyite feminist, for example, living in polymorphic kind of polymonogamousy kind of relations with people. It's a happening thing. Um, Simone de Beauvoir first claimed woman is not born but rather becomes female and prefigured the idea that we are subjects who are already written by patriarchy, capitalism, the family, church and state, kind of paraphrasing Louis Althusser there. Now this subsequently underpins all structural analysis from Laura Mulvey's male gaze to Judith Butler's popular theory of performative sexuality. So this is where they're kind of interesting intellectual kind of shifts and complexities around sexual difference begin to form. In, the art, in, in art, the performative became a conjunctive term, as in the term performative photography, where it was used to describe what was also termed directorial photography. <coughs> Performative photography, as it's widely used, perhaps because it signals the relationship between this mode of photography and performance art, especially when artists such as Cindy Sherman and Julie Rapp photograph themselves. So there's this interesting link as well. 
Now, Western feminism has an incredibly poor record when it comes to race relations. This disgrace is slowly being addressed through intersectional feminism and the recognition and growth of black women's culture, scholarship and activism. And I say recognition because it's been around for a long, long time and not been recognised, but it is also in an incredible growth period in terms of its visuality to the world at the moment. Tracy Moffat's engagement with Aboriginal experience, history, post-colonial and feminist thinking perhaps uh, pre presents sorry, some of the most important work of its time and she often embraces a performative photography, using it to present multiple points of view and intersections. Some of you would have seen this exhibition, I'm sure. Um, it appears that theoretically, at least, we're in a more open dialogue and relativity and ambiguity may be being valued more than dogmatic positions, like we're always already written by a language over which we have no control, which was a basic kind of mantra of the structuralists. Now, amidst all of these turns, those linguistics and cultural ones, the one constant for feminism operate, operates, oscillates around arguments about sexual difference, what have become known now as the difference, the difference debates. The difference debates also play out in the Western world in particular through advancements in medical science that make gender reassignment a real possibility for people. Hence my use of Amos's work and Muramora's work here. What is it to claim identity as a woman based on biology in a Western world in which gender reassignment is a reality? What are the rights of woman who was not born female? How does transgender identity support and or depend upon Simone de Beauvoir's woman is not born pronouncement that underpins so much feminist scholarship? How is transsexuality figured in new materialism that reasserts the importance of nature and matter? These are incredibly important questions, I think, that point to the multidimensionality in which we're living in and what we're trying to think about and what we're living. These shifts question assumptions about nature, biology and subjectivity. For feminism, they raise again the question, what is it to be female and or become a woman? In feminist scholarship, where does this leave the difference debates? Being the wrong sort of woman, not looking like the ideal woman in the visual imaginary of patriarchy, is something that has plagued women for centuries and been the subject of a range of art. Maria Kozik upset talkback radio hosts and their callers as well as, a as, as well as feminist critics with her billboards, Maria Kozik is bitch in Melbourne and Sydney for the Biennale of Sydney in 1990. The audience was divided about how the artist represented her own body 
Was it demeaning to women or was it empowering? Deborah Kelly appropriated the work for the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras with her queer version, Mahalia Jones is Butch, in 2009. In the difference debates, feminism has been divided along a binary axis for far too long and the transgender issue perforates that divide. I want to segue into history a little bit. In many ways, the difference debates in feminist art were played out early and can be seen in the comparison between two key, key works of art, Judy Chicago's The Dinner Party, 1974 to 79, and Mary Kelly's Postpartum Document, 73 to 79. These are supposedly, supposedly the icons of two waves of feminism, one the cultural wave, the crafty wave, and one the Lacanian post-structuralist wave, the other wave, the structuralist wave. Made at about the same time. Interesting, huh? I love art history. Okay. Now, Chicago and a host of volunteers used embroidery and ceramics, women's craft skills, to create 39 place settings for mythical and historical women positioned around a grand dining table. Now, disregarding the fact that Chicago's workplace relations were oppressive and quite appalling, and many volunteer craftswomen were exploited, the dinner party is still a significant work for art history. We won't go into all the politics behind all of that, some people know. Um, now, postpartum document, in contrast, is deeply personal, political, and theoretical. Mary Kelly uses the tools of the conceptual artist and creates a durational work that documents the first six years of her son's life and the relationship she develops with him as a woman and as a mother. Drawing heavily on Lacanian psychoanalytic theory, Kelly documents the child's coming into being through language. And these two works demonstrate the difference between, I argue, feminist approaches and how they were developing concurrently. The constructivist uh, position, represented by Mary Kelly, was dominant in American and British academic feminism, but not as obvious in art practice until the 1980s. In Europe, the idea of a feminine writing, pioneered by Hélène Suxou and Monique Wittig, had considerable traction in France. However, the authors were criticised by the Anglo-American postmodernists, post-structuralists, etc., for prioritising an avant-garde approach, one deemed to prioritise humanist agency and, in brackets, male artists. Uh, Julia Kristeva got the same load of criticism waged at her for the same reasons. On a philosophical and psychoanalytic level, the work of Luce Irigaray has attempted to chart a new feminine ontology, a divine sexual being, and a new way of being together that has attracted new materialists and feminists, relational artists. Countering the social constructivists, Irigaray asked, equal to whom? To whom does woman want to be equal? It's a very good question. 
since we're talking about equality. This is an old slide now. I think I made this in when it would have been 2011. So it needs to be updated, but I think the situation is about the same. In fact, it's, it's quite appalling. Uh, I can, I've done an enormous amount of literature review on Australian literature, and I can guarantee you it's still appalling. Now, feminist theory creates a complex philosophical and political discourse in the 21st century by building on, examining, extending, and repositioning feminist discourses over the last 100 years. And of course, indigenous feminism is doing this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But for white Anglo-feminism, it's about 100 years. And feminism has developed a strong voice in academia. Women's art across the globe is representing issues, uh, issue-based and experimental work. The art world, and to a lesser extent, the arts publishing uh, industry reflects this. But regardless of an avalanche of critical theory that has infiltrated almost every uh, scholarly discipline, real change is slow and women's lives are still impacted by inequality, not just inequality in the art world. This is just, you know, the tip of the iceberg. So the suggestion that we are in a post-feminist world can only be voiced, I would argue, from a position of privilege one that either has no concern for human rights at all or excludes women and children from humanity. In regard to feminist art in the 21st century, we can talk about art in terms of its feminist content and interpretation, through its themes, its standpoint, what it represents and the issues it focuses on. We can also look to a feminist practice and see this in process rather than in content or as both. Feminism is no longer gender specific. We can certainly see feminist impact on and interpretation within work by male artists and I think we should see a lot more of that and we should recognise that. Feminist art history is an even bigger field as it addresses all art. Some of the best feminist scholarship in the arts concerns the canon of art history and the works of great male artists which are analysed and deconstructed to point out the ideological underpinnings that sustain that canon. From a feminist art history perspective, we can also talk about the medium of the work, its approach, its style, and we can cast some opinions about a feminine aesthetic and whether one exists. There are many ways to approach feminism and the feminine in art, but for the rest of this talk, and it's very brief, I want to concentrate on the resurgence of a process-orientated methodology that has its roots in the small group processes of the earlier women's liberation movement, what was once called consciousness-raising groups. After decades of representational art about women and their experiences, some artists are turning to a practice of doing feminism. It has a history, of course. Group structures and participatory practices associated with women-only gatherings are being revisited as a way of making art by artists like I just showed you, Level. Uh, Sunday school, whole host of people that are coming to the 
residency program over the summer. And these practices first emerged in the 70s in dialogical performance and participatory community art. Vivian Binz's long-term work, Mother's Memories, Other's Memories, with the women in the suburb of Blacktown in Sydney, is one of the most notable examples in Australia. The community-focused event-based works of Anne Graham are also highly specific, significant in terms of establishing precursors for relational aesthetics, which was proclaimed as a new direction in the art of the 1990s by the French curator Nicolas Borio, who hasn't read any feminism. <laughs> I'm just leaving it on this because it's such a recent uh, show. Now, in, the, in this talk, I've tried to map out where feminism is at, at this particular historical point and to demonstrate the ways in which its practices, dialogues, positions and arguments are entangled over the generations in really interesting and enriching ways. Different geographical locations have thought feminism in different ways, and this is useful for its establishing the depth of the field of feminism. Generationally, feminism is still young, and although it has brought some pragmatic change for white, middle-class and educated women, it's opened up a huge amount of questions about gender, race, difference and equity. However, in the new generations where intersexuality is now motivational, some of feminism's whiteness will be addressed and gender hopefully will be accepted as a more fluid aspect of identity. Thank you. So we're going to perch up here on these, on these colonial chairs, designed by the patriarchy, I'm told. I won't tell you about what I think about chairs and designers. No, we're going to persist with the patriarchal ones. Um, so we're going to open up to conversation amongst ourselves and hopefully be interesting and um, have then questions, I think. So who wants to kick off? Surely you don't want me to say any more. I can talk about the... Thank you. Thank you. Do we need the mic? Yeah, yeah. Um, I can talk about the project that I'm working with Mary um, on for the exhibition. 
it is, um, and I'm very grateful to her also for her, her openness to collaborating and um, her willingness to share her work and make something new with it um, for the exhibition. So the project we're working on is based, um, actually we can probably find an image if we flick through, I think there might be one. It's based on um, an image that Mary designed for a 1977 periodical called Ripple. Uh, so it'll be 40 years uh, actually to the month, so it's a December issue. Um, and the work we've made is a, a five metre round table which will provide a, a kind of a context um, for discussion and um, conversations for the exhibition. And I suppose in thinking about that legacy of that particular feminism that uh, this work is generated from, which, is, which uh, existed around uh, organised childcare and women's right to, um, to work and also taking the pressure off the nuclear fa family. I think the, the legacy uh, for me for sculpture is around the idea that forms are generated through collective diagramming. The drawing precedes the form and the forms unfold horizontally over space. So they're not vertical spectacles, but they are incredibly beautiful nonetheless. Um, and we were saying before that this, this form of diagramming and these structures work in dialogue with another kind of vertical structure that women are responsible for traditionally, which is mess and untidiness. And I think this idea of being in constant uh, dialogue with mess, with problem solving, um, is really interesting and that this, this work, this model does actually give us an alternative to the mess we're in. And we do find ourselves with this kind of Kantian baby as the um, leader of the free world and I think that um, this idea of being in the centre and being uh, raised up through it is, is really important. anyone else want to talk about their projects? <laughs> um, I, I might, um, before I speak, I'll acknowledge that we're on the Yalakut Willem of the um, place of the Bunwarang people and to pay my respects to them and to the ancestors of this country and that this is, you know, unceded sovereign country, <clears throat> which when I was approached about being part of the curatorial team for this show, I, I was a little bit... Um, cautious in making a decision about whether to proceed, uh, not because I don't believe in women's work or in the ideals of feminism, but because I'm, I'm quite critical of, of white feminism or Becky feminism, and um, people that know my work know that, so that's not something I'm worried about saying, um, but it's something that Indigenous women and women of colour um, and our trans and, and non-binary siblings um, in an intersectional way, we're very aware of, of the implications, you know, as you're speaking about Anne and the dangers of white feminism. Um, so I had a really good think <laughs> about whether to, to participate and whether I could see myself comfortably as, you know, an Aboriginal woman artist and, and curator 
um, and academic sitting in, in this context, in this space. So um, I did have a really good think about it and I thought it's going to be really challenging and I warned Max that I would argue with people. <laughs> but he's used to that from me in sovereignty. <laughs> and, and one of the things with sovereignty is that, you know, I, I sort of put some conditions out <laughs> to him and said that, you know, within sovereignty um, to address the, you know, the gender disparities that, you know, you showed in that diagram and ones that um, Elvis, you know, speaks about with the Countess, um, that I wanted at least the same amount of women, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women artists in sovereignty, if not more, and um, that we have a dedicated matriarchal space. So, and that all happened because, you know, Max is a good listener. And he's, he's an ally and, uh, and we've got him trained up by a number of matriarchs who are watching him, <laughs> including Annie Carolyn. <laughs> you know, we sort of go, he's a white fella, but he's all right. <laughs> so from that place, you know, I made the decision about taking this on and being very responsible and being, um, you know, practising accountability and reciprocity. And they're all the things that are embedded, I think, in the actual history of feminism and the on-the-ground work, on work of it before it was theorised into being these isms that um, don't always work. And as you said, you know, the, the notion of them being um, uh, labelled into, into waves as such, but some are happening concurrently, like, it's often nonsensical. And, um, and sort of got, you know, academicised into another existence, I think. And what really excites me now is that um, the number of Aboriginal women academics uh, and Torres Strait Islander women academics in this country who are reimagining and reconfiguring and speaking, you know, back to that and to, to creating, a, a, you know, an Aboriginal standpoint of feminist theory that Dr... Um, Professor Aileen Morton-Robinson writes about, and she did that in 2000, and she wrote Talking Up to the White Woman. But that is 17 years ago, and, and there's been other iterations of um, Aboriginal and Black and feminist um, intersectional feminism, um, you know, and it was in this space um, during one of our sovereignty panels, Matriarch Speak, that the activist and artist Arika Walu, you know, she just put it out to everybody and said, do not let your racism drive your feminism. You know, for a young black woman to say that to an audience like yourselves is very courageous. Mm -hmm. And it took a lot of guts for her to say that. And, um, and, you know, and I repeat that call. You know, we've got to be so critically self-aware of what we're doing in our own lives, in our own responsibilities, you know, and um, reciprocity, which, you know, is a, is a practice that's taught to us out of matriarchy. You know, and what you're talking about, you know, childcare and managing chaos, you know, um, often becomes women's business, whether we like it or not at times. You yeah. Know. I think it certainly is um, an issue with some of these histories and it's important to hold them to account. Going through um, this archive, which I inherited from, from my mother, um, I would have liked to have seen more intersection. Um, this, this movement was based in Fitzroy and um, they did share and intersect with um, a lot of different struggles, but I think it would have been good to see more. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, I think, um, I think, Mr. Girl, you should respond to something. But just, <laughs> but just really quickly on Fitzroy, I mean, it's, you know, it's one of the homes, it's not the only home of Aboriginal activism in, in Melbourne, and one was Footscray. Um, 
where Annie March Tucker, um, who wrote the first Aboriginal autobiography in 1977, it was the first her story documented in this country, um, but in Fitzroy you had people like Annie Edna Brown who started all of the Aboriginal health services and funeral service, um, you know, who's actually Areka's great-grandmother. Um, so, you know, there's that legacy there and they're, sometimes they're sitting side by side and, you know, the hope is that that solidarity takes place in a very genuine, you know, meaningful way, yeah. Um, I wanted to comment on what you were talking about uh, in regards to um, the idea of waves of feminism existing in, like, you know, um, I don't know, in a linear way, which isn't reality, um, and how that sort of applies to, to my work and my relationship to feminism and my relationship to, um, I suppose, art as activism. Um, in the, and also what you said about, um, you know, who do we want to be equal to? Um, and how that is, I think, something that people are thinking about a lot quite recently um, in regards to intersectionality uh, in terms of, um, like, equality for women, you know, a, a white woman's equality looks very different to a black woman's equality, looks very different to a First Nations woman's equality and so on. And I think it's interesting in relationship to um, like the history of art and the art canon and ways in which we, we look to pre-existing um, you know, foundations or ideas or thoughts to create our empowerment from. Um, and that sort of, my relationship to white feminism is a feminism that exists to replicate ways of oppression that, you know, that women are trying to escape from um, by casting that oppression onto other women or other people who aren't necessarily within their ideals or their contexts. Um, and I think it's interesting for me, um, because I grew up in this country and because I grew up completely surrounded by, I think, like, the Central Coast is, like, 99.99% white Anglo-Saxon. Um, and I came to this country when I was five, so I grew up in that, and I grew up with uh, the idea that what they want, as in like my uh, peers in school and whatever, what they look towards, what they want, what they want to create is what I should want and what I should want to create. And it's interesting that um, it's only through failure and through you know stumbling or whatever that I've realised that I don't exist in their canon and I don't exist in their narrative. So I have to sort of create my own, which is what I'm trying to do with my work. But then that ties again into like, uh, if I look at, waves of feminism as a linear thing, then of course I'm not going to find a way that I fit in. But if I look at it as this sort of, you know, expanding, constantly growing organism that exists in different ways, in different cultures and in different societies, then I can find places that I fit in. And I think that there's an empowerment in that which I'm really excited about that exists um, in conversations that are happening around me in embracing the organicness of uh, empowerment or organicness of... Um, waves or thoughts or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's um, spot on. And I think we were talking earlier about um, how uh, social media and the internet actually opens up 
multitudes of difference, which is outside the canon. It's like kind of like artists. Like I don't particularly like those statistical slides because you know um, women want to be equal in the galleries to male artists, and so Irigaro would say, "Equal? Why? You know, um, does your work fit there? Why would you want it to fit there?" And it's a similar kind of thing. Like you can fit if you assimilate into the same, if you become the same. Like women can become the same as men, why would they want to become the same? And, you know, it's like kind of... And the whole thing about the kind of silencing of early art activisms and then the academicisation of feminism, it's the same thing. It's kind of going for that um, stereotypical uh, notion of success, which is patrilineal, patriarchal. Mm. But do you want to say something about the internet and, and, and the, that kind of thing? It's so funny that you say that because I recently, like, uh, deleted my Instagram account. No, I'll come back just for you. I think there's a, there's a lot of power in the internet because the internet as a, as a medium or as a, like a, an organism can replicate whatever you want it to. It can be whatever you want it to. Uh, but I think, I mean, like, when I read about uh, the initiation of the internet and the ideas that the people had who created it in terms of creating this sort of, um, I don't know, like, new way of being that's kind of limitless and that has the potential to, uh, you know, be whatever you want it to be, whatever. Uh, and how often we forget the limitless and the expansiveness of the internet. Um, in terms of like, we, I find myself anyway, that I often just replicate everyday life on the internet because that's what I know. And it's not until I tap into people who are on the internet in completely different cultures and different places to Melbourne, Australia, that I reignite that excitement of what it means to be in, in this virtual space that is completely formless and, you know, whatever. I find it really great. I love the internet, even though I'm not on it very often anymore, because it's what's made me able to be, to tap into histories of art, histories of image making and histories of, uh, you know, cultural you know, embracing culture, culture or whatever that I have no access to here and that I didn't know existed. And I think that's what I'm talking about when I talk about, uh, when I was talking about um, the, why your conversation about the waves of feminism was really exciting to me because um, I sort of had that understanding from art school that this happened, then this, then this, then this, and now we're here. And you either fit into something that's happened before or you're just here right now. And it's this sort of, extremely Eurocentric representation of art and art history and, you know, feminism and feminist history. But when I sort of discovered the internet and was able to tap into, you know, what people are doing in South Africa, what people are doing, you know, even in just different parts of Australia, um, that I found, like, oh, shit, like, there's, there's a history that exists outside of what I've known. And I'm not so much interested right now in my practice in creating something new. I'm just interested in belonging to that history that's been excluded from my um, education and belonging to that history that's been um, sort of shunned from traditional art history. And that being like, for me personally, the history of uh, studio photography in Africa and just image making and the visual language of um, 
post-colonial African art because I didn't have access to that. I didn't know that that was even a thing. And knowing that that exists and knowing that there's a history that exists that embraces me without me having to sort of contort myself to fit into something is totally where I'm at right now with my image making. That approach sounds to me like um, subjectivity over identity. I think that's a problem that we have is that you get this kind of hashtag feminism thing happening. So it's, yeah, how to, capitalism always wants to find these kind of differences that can be marketed. So it's how to kind of find your own space within that. Yeah, I mean, just a quick point too on the idea of equal. I got this email last week to mentor uh, women at Monash, and they called it weakwool, like equal, but with a W. <laughs> and I thought that really sums it up because you're you're not equal, you're weakwool. You're doing extra work to to make uh, this organisation feel um, that they are rolling out equality. Yeah, I think when you know Beyonce's Flawless came out and. Um, you know, and she, um, you know, had that, that big hot pink, I think, feminist sign behind her on stage and then the, the conversations that weren't or weren't had on, you know, uh, say in the United States and then seeing, you know, Hollywood male stars wearing feminist T-shirts and it lasted for about five minutes, you know, <laughs> saying everyone should be feminists and... Um, and, and then actually critiquing Beyonce because apparently if you're black and beautiful and sexy, you can't also be a serious feminist, you know. And, you know, with great dismay around that time, I, I was watching these Facebook conversations with white Australian um, female musicians, um, some of whom I know, a, a local, um, sort of denouncing Beyonce somehow as not being serious enough uh, as a campaigner for women's rights or not as an activist. So somehow through being beautiful and sexy and embracing her sexuality, she'd sold out the very ideals. And these women were saying things like, oh, you know, you should get a real woman like Joni Mitchell or <laughs> a real artist like Patti Smith, you know, real women that don't sell out. And it's, well, Patti Smith's album cover was shot by Robert Mapplethorpe and um, they had this great collaboration. It was, it was imbued with sexuality and, uh, and hotness and um, fluid, you know, um, sexuality and politics and um, the whole thing that was happening in New York at that time and and but to turn on our women you know Beyonce's sort of doing a really I think what Josephine Baker did in the 1930s and she was treated the same and only found true success and respect in in Paris and in Europe um, you know so the, it's somehow we're not taken seriously in that embrace of the danger of black beauty, you know, within within that. And I'm really interested in that. And that's, you know, one of the collectives we were yarning about earlier too. Um, some of the work we do at um, Black Dot with the curator um, Kimber Thompson, you know, we're crossing cultural um, groups where we have been maybe admiring each other and a little bit shy of each other and hoping to collaborate. But now, you know, there's... And groups younger than me, I've been lucky to be in a couple of shows there, like um, Fifty Shades of Black, which was so exciting. And, you know, young people of colour and Indigenous people and First Nations people and um, Pacific Islander peoples, um, Southeast Asian peoples all collaborating and saying that this notion of whatever Australian means 
isn't fitting for us. It's not working. You know, we're, we're all struggling under white supremacy and, um, you know, sexism and, and racism in this country and, and structural, you know, violence um, and racism for us is very, very familiar. And, but still, like, we, we love and want to reach out to siblings and say, you know, there's another place you can find with us. But this, there has to be a new imagining of the future and that's what gives me hope and that's what I get excited about. And people like Hannah Donnelly and her apocalypse um, scene, you know, writes that the future is not colonised yet. And, you know, and the future is a place for our imaginings and for um, not just for white science fiction writers who seem to only imagine what colonisation is like if you're a cyborg or a um, replicant or, you know, all these fabulous things and the shows I love like Westworld and um, Battlestar Galactica, but the new one, not the old one. <laughs> and Blade Runner and the same, like the old one, not the new one because the new one's a bit disappointing. But, um, you know, the notion that the replicant is not quite human, not real and not authentic is what happens to us. You know, so, and it's my personal experience that my identity's questioned um, I think the comments about not looking really Aboriginal are slowing down a little bit because I think the circles I move in, I'm very selective about and also that I give a lot of credit to p people like yourselves and people in Melbourne for being one of the most sophisticated in, in Australia, really, that the arts scene here can be very... Um, I think, Atong, you said it earlier, you haven't found somewhere else like this in order to find these places of belonging, you know no means perfect and can be very, very dangerous for us. But um, there are spaces through art that you can find, you know, a self-determined healing. Um, you still have to bite back and push back a lot. But it's really important that we create these spaces collaboratively, you know, to do it. And, you know, for us to be, you know, doing this show in Acre for sovereignty have to have, have happened here was very um, important, a really significant moment you know, for, for my community and the, um, and other Aboriginal communities in this state and country, so, yeah. Um, I just want to touch on what you, uh, you know, you mentioned, like, I suppose, dehumanisation and that experience of dehumanisation in relation to, like, cyborgs, which I think is really interesting. But, um, yeah, as you were talking and just now as you were talking, it made me sort of think about um, the sort of... I don't know, I suppose when, when you think of feminist art or when we people in general think of feminist art, it's usually something to do with the body, often. And I find it interesting that, um, in my experience, that's not something that I see happen often with, like, feminist art from women of colour. And, um, and I think that that comes from, like, the inherited or, like, held on to dehumanisation of, like, you know, black bodies and brown bodies. And I think, like, you know, it's made me think about my work and how I camouflage my body when I'm doing self-portraits because there's this sort of, like, inability to relate to the physical body that you inhabit because it's never been yours to begin with. You know, all these identifiers that I hold on to are not things that I've given myself. They're things that have sort of been thrust onto me. And I think that there's quite an interesting history of um, art from people of colour that sort of deals with the body without actually dealing with the body because it's too traumatic or something. Um, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that, all of you. I do the same. I, I have, like, these different characters that I, I like to um, sort of embody in 
kind of self-portraiture or performance work that I'm doing, um, there is a, a spiritual um, being that Annie Margaret Tucker talked about in the in the book I mentioned earlier, if everyone cared, and uh, it's this ancestral being called Mook Mook, and she's a wild, ugly woman um, with big ears and, a, and an awful face and wild, big, big hair, and she roams the bush hunting men and children, and she... she <laughs> She likes to um, chop men up and um, and cook the pieces of them on fires and steal people's babies. And so my grandmother had this book. Um, so I started reading it when I was about nine or ten years of age and I was terrified by it. And I didn't really go back to it until a few years ago. Um, and it's, it's one of the, you know, her stories that's really important in my um, PhD research about um, Aboriginal women's sovereignty and activism and uh, ways of disrupting um, and speaking back to colonial and patriarchal spaces, like particularly the academy and, and public space. So I've embodied Mook Mook and, you know, she's got dead weeds and flowers in her hair. Um, like, I've just sort of run my head through a paddock on the outskirts of Melbourne and that Patterson's Curse that looks really pretty from a distance. Um, you know, it's purple and it's, it's very um, enticing and like a lot of you know, introduce weeds, they're very seductive from a distance and they creep up on you. And next thing you're married to them and having kids with them and... <laughs> Not, yeah, a bit about me. <laughs> um, but it's like in Mean Girls when they describe, you know, a Mona Lisa, you know, it's very attractive from a distance and you get up closer and it's not as good as it looks. So um, Mook Mook sort of dragged her hair through all these weeds and um, my eyes are red, um, red, dark red circles around them. Um, and, you know, she doesn't wear bras or underwear because they're the enemy of um, women, as my grandmother taught me and my mother. They would in check my, myself and my cousins um, to make sure we weren't wearing underwear when we went to bed because she said they're really bad for you and that's what white women make you wear. <laughs> Let it breathe. Let it breathe downstairs. It's not good for you. So she taught me that, you know, one of the most dangerous parts of colonisation and, and enforced patriarchy was underwear, you know, these restrictive <laughs> garments that you, you know, first thing most women do when you get home if you wear bras is you take it off. They're relief that you get is, it's very particular. So Mook Mook doesn't wear any of those things. Um, she carries emu eggs around to make, you know, gluten-free emu egg chocolate cakes um, because she's, you know, observing gentrification and hipster cafes and so she, she wants to fit in and she wants to do the right thing but she can't, you know, but she's trying. So she lives in Footscray and she's um, on the fringe, you know, but she can't sort of deal with herself as she is. So she, you know, I... I I couldn't imagine imaging myself in my work as I am. It has to be through that kind of, you know, lens or storytelling. Um, and it's to do with trauma, just like you said, Atong. Um, it's almost too much to deal with. And I feel like that if I did, I'd also be somehow speaking for all of our women. So sometimes when I see works that deal with, um, you know, very graphic um, works that, you know, might um, represent, you know, a vagina or a vulva or, or breasts or women's nakedness, I find it startling not because I'm a prude or don't love female bodies, they're beautiful. It's because culturally I feel a little bit jilted by it somehow because we can't do that. And it's sort of, it's not like I want to exactly, but we don't have the same freedom in order to do that because of the damage to the Aboriginal women's body 
that has been enacted by the colonial project, which continues, you know. Um, and Ali Baker, who's part of the Unbound Collective, whose work will be in this show, which I'm very excited about, and she's an incredible artist. Um, she uh, spoke about this um, recently. The, the show Max mentioned that I'm in at um, uh, Ace Open at Tanadi Festival in, in Adelaide on Ghana country is called Next Matriarch, and Ali and I were questioned about whether we were feminists, and she just paused for a while, and she said, um, find that really hard to answer. And what she spoke about was like, that her grief was so overwhelming, she was finding it hard to articulate, because she said, I can't talk about that until the damage that's done to our bodies is, is dealt with. So there's like this amnesia in this country about that, you know. And while, well, you know, Jill Mara's remembered, and um, you know, what about Rhoda Roberts' twin sister who was um, missing and murdered, found murdered for years, no one cared about that case. Um, Miss Do, who died in custody. Um, Lynette Daly, who was sexually assaulted to death, and it took two coronial inquiries before her murderers were charged only recently, and they await uh, sentencing now. So, you know, the, it goes unspoken. You know, we remember our women. And so I think, for me, art and the business of it has this very profound, you know, purpose and, and meaning for remembering, you know, our lost women, yeah. So the, the body is complicated in our work, you know, it's not that straightforward, yeah. But I'm very, um, you know, influenced and inspired, you know, I'm walking the footsteps of, you know, Destiny and, um, you know, Destiny Deacon's work and Tracy Moffat's, which were very informative to me as a, you know, teenager, um, finding art, you know, and a way to see myself in it. So that, that excited me and um, they're both still major influences for me. That whole thing about the body and the body and trauma is it's very profound what you've said and I think a lot of people here who've kind of grown up on, you know, the body matters in postmodernism um, wouldn't have kind of thought that through. And I really take what you say about that. Um, the women that weren't remembered, like, yeah, Jill Ma, what about all the other women and, you know, all the women mutilated. Mm. And the whole colonial kind of rape of your people's body as a as a kind of like political politically violent um, invasion mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean there's, there's, there's important points as well to really interrogate and um, I was speaking to Lisa Hilly about it and she you know was part of this amazing panel here on Saturday um, um, in response to um, Carter's exhibition about colonisation and repair an injury and we were talking later and you know about the fact that colonialism is not a solely male project and we forget that and we forget that you know patriarchy is um, you know it, it's its function and they operate hand in hand and then you know feminism has come as a response to that I suppose but it, it left us out in its design you know and in its theorizing um, so it's really important, and, and I discovered a book called um, The Real Matilda by Miriam Dixon from 1976, and she, um, she spoke about the hatred of black velvet, the way Aboriginal women are described as, as sexual, sexually subjugated beings. And, um, you know, she said... And she's the, at that time, I think, and for me now, in looking at it in a, a 
revisionist way, I suppose, for a white historian or feminist to, to name these things was very important to me to discover that. And, um, you know, she wrote about the fact that uh, colonial women had um, holes built into the, the walls of their houses so that they could slide their rifles through so they could take shots at Aboriginal men, women and children that walked onto their properties. So, and also they, you know, turned a blind eye when our women and children were raped by their men and um, it was white women that engaged Aboriginal female domestic children from the age of, you know, 10 and up to clean their houses tend their gardens, cook their food, um, you know, and Annie Marge talks about that as well, that happened to her. She had soiled nappies rubbed in her face by her white boss when she was a 12-year-old girl. Um, so they're the stories that we carry with us. So for us as First Nations women, our relationship to white feminism and the notion that somehow this was a patriarchal project and that women were just sort of benignly, you know, participating um, is very fraught. You know, and it causes a lot of grief and anguish. And also we become very, um, you know, protective of ourselves and our stories in, in the telling of them to make sure that we're speaking for ourselves. And um, even the great Ujiri Nunnuckle's works were edited by a white woman and um, there's a fantastic book about that. Uh, I think it's called Black Words, uh, White Edits, or white ed something like that. And it shows a process that she had to go through in being translated, you know. And so we lose a lot in translation. Sometimes it's important to not, yeah. <laughs> just to refuse to, just to, to speak, you know. And I see that in your work, Atong, like it's, it is what it is. And to, um, you know, to try to translate that for other audiences can be really problematic. You lose something, I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that there, it, it's, the idea of translation is really tricky in the sense that a lot of us have lost our language and need to have, you know, I, I, you know, cultural ideas or words or whatever translated for us. Um, and I think that I fall into that desire to translate because that's a role that I play in the family in a lot of ways, being sort of between cultures and um, being like a cultural translator and being sometimes like a literal translator as well. Um, but I think that there's a lot of power in presenting something specific for a very, very specific audience and, you know, for that audience alone and for sort of everybody outside of that to, to struggle with that inability to understand what's being presented um, because a lot of people deal with that every day, you know, and it's cool to sort of, um, I don't know, I feel like there's a lot of people that are never excluded that should have that experience of exclusion, even if it's just, you know, in an art gallery once in a year or whatever, um, because I don't think it's so much about like subversion for me, I think it's just about like, I'm trying to speak a language and I don't want it to be clouded by um, my guilt or my, you know, desire to make it as palatable as possible because at the end of the day I'm never going to be palatable, you know, so I may as well just throw caution to the wind as they say. We're opening up to you now. Oh, there's a question over here. Katrina. Uh, 
Hi, um, thank you for a really, really stimulating discussion. Um, it was great to hear all your perspectives. I was just wondering um, what your respective opinions um, were in relation to, as a female artist, the idea that you can adopt modes of praxis and representations of women, gender, femininity um, that have been characteristic of a male artistic canon um, in a manner that's empowering. Is there a fine line between using an established methodology in a way that um, empowers and furthers um, your own practice and then um, on the other side perhaps um, that being an act of assimilation or of you know tr trying to subscribe to something so that you fit where how can you delineate the two at what point can you st at what point are you able to employ pre-existing methodologies that have been typical of a patriarchal tradition in an empowering way and at what point is that simply an act of assimilation or um, an internalization of a patriarchal ideology can speak to that. I think it is absolutely exhausting to have to keep explaining formats that are not familiar to the art world and to keep saying why they are art and why they have a place. That's certainly something that I have found. Whereas the practice of kind of flipping over something that is already established um, can, can be um, more expedient, I think. But, I mean, that idea of not getting the format is such a huge problem. It really is. If you look at something like uh, Natty Solo, it is an artwork. It's an artwork. It's a performance. It's an endurance performance. It's, it actually sits really, really easily in the art canon but it takes years for people to work that out. And why is that? Does, does that answer? Uh, partially, yes. But um, I was thinking um, even specifically of you know, practices like painting and drawing and employing techniques which are very characteristic of, say, you know, the fine art tradition. Can that be employed by a woman in a contemporary artistic sphere in a manner which is empowering and transgressive? Or is that regressive in this day and age, in your opinion? I think everything's up for, gra for grabs. I would say and, and. Uh, I would say the, the complexity and confusion is a sign of health. Um, and there are traditions of, I mean, for example, abstract painting might be seen to be um, a masculine tradition, but actually if you look at something like that, that is an abstraction. Um, and it's also a minimal object. So I think we need to um, think with more complexity about these formats as well. And of course, there's an amazing history of um, feminist um, painting as well. But the, the underlying ideas, uh, they may look similar, but the un underlying ideas are so different. Yeah, I wanted to just add to that as well. In um, like, Because I feel like that's what I do with my work in the sense that I was first sort of engaging in um, having an understanding of the history of photography in Africa. And the history of photography in Africa comes from ethnographic photography, which is inherently, you know, disgusting, um, and is inherently sort of, um, I mean, my idea of ethnog ethnography is like, um, oh, somebody made a quote which I wrote down. 
um, it, ethnographic photography gives culture but not history or identity. So it's like, you know, the photographer, that being the coloniser within this particular context, is um, projecting themselves onto the images that they're creating of, um, and, and, and also projecting their ideas of what these bodies, not these people, these bodies are, and what their culture is and how it relates to them as colonizers. Um, but I still take photographs and that's inherently, you know, a patriarchal, yeah. a colonial, whatever, whatever, whatever thing. And I think what I'm really interested in is what happens when, what happens when the colonized takes the lens. You know, how does that shift the, the meaning or the, the, the language of that image just by the act of that being you know, a subjugated person taking over the tools, I suppose, of the coloniser. Um, and if you look at, you know, the history of photography in Africa, you can see this beautiful sort of narrative or language of, um, of image making happening as uh, African people started taking photographs of themselves. And I think that in itself is enough. I don't think it necessarily has to be like, um, a thing to struggle with, I think, when you decide to do something that has been used to oppress you or has been denied you or whatever, the act of you making that decision is amazing in itself, I think. Yeah. Thank you very much. We can't see you because you're it's becoming silhouettes. Because of the wonderful sunshine. It looks beautiful. <laughs> Just can't see you. Hi. Um, so I, you were speaking before about um, finding histories of studio artists in Africa um, and that being something that in you, it was good for you um, rather than um, having that sort of like white male history um, of art to look back on. And I wonder whether everyone thinks that the way forward for feminism and art should be more focused on having a look at existing established structures and trying to make that more feminist and um, culturally aware, or whether it's having a look at um, these, other, these other subcultures within art and giving power to those. Does that make sense? Focusing more on sort of like making existing structures more feminist or giving more power to these smaller lesser known structures which already give power to you and your own art forms as they are? I think I know you mean. <laughs> um, for, I mean, for, for me and the other First Nations women that I collaborate with, we speak about reasserting, you know, an Aboriginal women's authority, which has been eroded by, you know, colonialism and patriarchy here and violence. So it's about just um, kind of don't worry about the rest of it. You know, we, we focus on reasserting those stories and that and that um, the way of speaking back into those spaces and disrupting them. So, and often, um, yeah, I mean, there are some divides because if you think structurally about um, spaces and, and galleries, you know, we're not generally in, in ARIES, you know, we're not generally there. So there's, um, there are individuals who do projects in them, and um, and I have in the past. But we tend to go where we're welcome and invited as Indigenous artists, and where spaces are actively working to, um, you know, decolonise the way they work and 
Um, and perhaps even for me, it's about going into another space, a non-colonial space that um, academic, um, a Métis academic from uh, Turtle Island, Canada, um, David Ganell writes about. And he says it's actually about being non-colonial. And so in order to do that, sometimes you have to, um, you know, refuse and resist the space and find other spaces to make the work. So that's why places like Black Dot are very important and the work that we do at Footscray Community Arts Centre. So sometimes it's, it's the, you know, it's the relationship between the place and the, and the work as well. Um, and, you know, and figuring out, like, what is success? Is it aspiring to being represented by particular galleries and, you know, being collected by the NGV and the NGA and all of those things, you know, which are lovely if you're a working artist. And, of course, they're the things that you, you know, you hope to achieve, but they are part of, you know, that patriarchal system. And ultimately, the directors of all of those centres are usually white men. So, you know, this question you said before, who do we want to be equal to? You know, we would like to be recognised as the first peoples of this country and treated with respect. So, you know, in 2017 still, you know, um, gender doesn't trump race. So our, you know, solidarity as women can't really be fully implemented until the injustices against us as first peoples are rectified. So that, that drives my work and a lot of the, you know, Indigenous women that I work with, that's our focus, you know. So the other parts are, you know, that's the, the additional work that you've got to do and that you've got to deal with. Yeah. I don't know if that answers what... Um, thank you for your time today. Uh, I have a question about, just in connection with what you just said, Paola, about... Um, um, spaces and how particular art gets exhibited and seen and even in your case Atong, if you would like to respond to this question too um, because that in itself is a very is is is, uh, is not a non-colonial way of looking at things and so in your experience how do you make those kind of interventions in the way your art is consumed or uh, possibly exhibited for audience members um, who may not completely get it. Um, I want to just like share an example of a way that I saw that happen that I thought was really incredible. Um, and the first time I saw it, so uh, Gabby Briggs, who's an incredible um, First Nations artist, and she's an, she's amazing. Um, she and I were at RMIT together. Um, she graduated. I didn't. Well, that's another story. Um, and her graduation exhibition was um, an installation that only um, Indigenous people could enter. And it was, you know, in the whole, you know, it's at, a, a, you know, an educational institution that's recreating or, like, teaching um, forms of art and ways of exhibiting that is, you know, inherently, you know, going along the art canon and everything about it is that. And yet she chose to um, completely, I suppose, subvert that or make people think about what it means to consume work and what it means to consume often, like, quite painful or difficult work when people talk about their identities um, by making them, you know, completely um, inaccessible to people who don't get it or people who have never had to think about what you know, their relation to consumption is. Um, and they did that again with their exhibition. Um, so Gabby works with Erika uh, and they have a 
a collective called Real Black Tings, which is amazing as well. And they had a show at Signal last year, I think, where they they exhibited photographic works and they had this um, like telephone inst installed, like a payphone that was... Um, when I got there, the payphone died, so I don't know what it said, but it was apparently really beautiful. Um, and that space was only... They had a sign out the front that said, um, you can only enter if you do not have the colonizer's blood or something along those lines. Um, and it caused a lot of controversy. But I think that that's a really cool way to, to, to confront that. Um, and sometimes it's cool to just confront it directly as well, because I, I, I mean, like my, the last show that I had was at um, Blindside, and it was a show of like uh, just a few um, video works for the video, channel's video festival. Um, and one of the works that I had, which was sort of a progression of me painting my face to kind of conceal myself or whatever, um, with all these questions that I had come up with in conversation with artists of colour in terms of, like, um, why do we prioritise exhibition as the ideal form of presenting work and why are galleries the way they are and why should we want to do that? And um, that was, you know one way to confront that, but, yeah. Don't know if that answers what you were saying. <laughs> um, hi, next question. Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you very much for your um, insights tonight. I'm just here. Actually, Anne, I was wondering, um, I was struck at the start of the um, of your of your paper, you mentioned this uh, quite enlightening quote for me, which was, um, you know, every woman becomes a feminist in a way. I'm definitely paraphrasing. That's kind of um, there was a, a quote that was you're born a woman, but then you become. Oh, yeah, that's Simone de Beauvoir. Yeah, a woman a, is not more born, but becomes a woman. A woman is not born. But she's made made a woman through patriarchal language, basically. Okay, all right, so that's, that's a different viewpoint to what I had understood the quote to be. And, and, and knowing where it's coming from, it makes a lot of sense. But um, I guess my question to you was, um, there's a lot of debate when it comes to uh, feminism around, I think, consciousness um, and femininity. And thinking about, uh, you know, are every woman feminist or as a woman artist, are you a feminist? That comes up a lot, I think, for women artists. This kind of question gets repeated to them. And so the question then becomes um, associated uh, with gender in a way, but I think it's an active participation of our gender. And um, I wanted to ask you all um, if there was an aha moment, perhaps, for you that made that activism or the ism in feminism active. So was there a, a point in each of your practices, either in your work where you found like, okay, now this work is my first feminist work or my first feminist paper or a moment in, in like media or something that created that consciousness for you to transition from a woman artist or woman thinker to a feminist? All right, I'll have a go at that. Thank you, Anis. Um, 
Part, partly, for me, it has been about survival because the things that I have made have not always been seen as art. So going back into the history that kind of generated those works has helped me to be able to advocate for them and describe how they, how they um, have a place. And I think also that history, in the time that I've been practicing, what I noticed is that art museums are becoming neighbourhood centres. They're becoming the community centre in that diagram. So I can use that, that history actually to hold the museum to account, for example. So that history is about creating um, women's participation in the labour market, for better or worse. Um, and in museums, we find that our labour has very little value. In fact, it's more of an old school um, idea of volunteering or unpaid uh, childcare. And so um, I would say that feminist practice has been really useful um, and, and is re really current. Um, yeah, a moment, um, maybe... Uh, when, when my mum, when I first found her archive and was looking through it, she, in her diary, she was always talking about how she hadn't contributed enough um, and that she wasn't confident enough. She, wasn't, she couldn't be like the key speaker, the person who, who stood up for feminism. But when I saw all the work that she'd done, that she was able to research, that she was the one... Um, who had the information, I, I wanted to find a space for her as well. Um, so that's probably a key moment. I don't know. Um, um, uh, it's a tricky question because it, um, it kind of, number one, it locks feminism into this kind of block, becomes, becomes this thing that we've been trying to talk it out of being, if you know what I mean. Um, so I think, you know, to think of feminism as a particular position is, a, is not feminist. I think that feminism is uh, not a particular position. I think feminism is a very relative, relativistic position depending on where you are culturally, economically, um, gender identity-wise, etc., etc. I think why I took to feminism was I was born in a female body and I realised that being born in a female body um, led to inequality um, you were not equal to anybody, you know, whether it's equal to whom or, you know, the inequality and injustice was um, the experience of the body that I was born into. And because of that, I kind of drifted. I don't think there was any particular moment. I think actually as a, a, a young art school student, I was fairly anti-feminism, but then I became gay. And so I became feminist because of that, because there were more women in the feminist movement to be attracted to.
completely <laughs> unpolitical decision. Hi, how are you going? Um, so my question is about, I guess, the body, which you've touched on a couple of times. Um, and I guess, so from your point of view, I'm asking, given how many problematic definitions and limitations have been placed around the body across history, um, all kinds of bodies, and which continue to be constructed, even within debates about feminism and um, racism and intersectionality and all of that. Uh, so basically, I was wondering if you feel that the body, with such a strong history in art, feminist art, etc., is still a worthy topic to be, um, sorry, to be decompacted, I, I guess, um, and how to do that when the body can be something that is a source of trauma for so many people and when you're talking about a body that can't be defined in any one way, it's all bodies. Yes, that's my question. I'm happy to have a go at that. Um, I think, and what you were just saying about, you know, being born into a female body, um, you know, early on I realised that it placed, it actually placed me um, not just um, in a position where I was going to suffer inequality, but um, that I was in danger um, from, from you know, male perpetrators um, and, and female as well. And so it, that kind of trauma, and for me it was generational in our family, you know, um, as an Aboriginal woman, sadly, that's part of the, you know, the colonial legacy, the intergenerational um, sexual trauma that we go through. And so, you know, it causes um, a whole raft of symptoms, of trauma symptoms, including, you know, disassociation, which is a really interesting, um, you know, psychological realm that I, I like to look at in, in my work because in disassociation, one of the things that you need to do when you're healing from it is to actually return to your body. And for, you know, our people, when we're forced off our homelands into missions and reserves, um, forcibly moved, our lives are, you know, doctrinated through policy and... Um, and government um, regulations. Um, these are very disassociative acts where you're constantly trying to come back. You know, the Stolen Generation is a very large example of um, a, you know, a, an apocalyptic act of disassociation, actually, that continues. You know, there's 1,700 Victorian Aboriginal child, uh, children at the moment in out-of-home care in this state. Um, so they are children taken out of their Aboriginal homes and families and they are predominantly being raised by white families and predominantly by white women. Um, so this relationship between, you know, black and white women as being child bearers and child takers, um, the women whose children are stolen and the women who end up, you know, having those children, um, to, to be growing up in a family that's not yours and to not be in your culture is another act of disassociation. So the body's very present in a lot of Indigenous work, even when it's not, um, you know, in a literal sense, as in the, you know, um, the, the body being represented in, in the work. But interestingly, in the next uh, matriarch show that um, I mentioned before, um, there's seven of us, and I think all of us have included our own actual bodies or faces in those works. 
Um, Ali's work, Ali Baker's work, who I mentioned earlier, she has two portraits of other Aboriginal women um, and they're incredible. Um, but we've all done it. And um, the co-curators of that show, Kimberly Moulton and um, Liz Now from Ace Open, did it in, as a collaboration too, which is really interesting um, because Liz is a white feminist curator and she does a fabulous job at Ace Open. And Kimberly is a Yorta Yorta woman who's a senior southeastern curator of Aboriginal um, collections here at Melbourne Museum. And she's an independent curator in her own right. So it was very interesting that out of that collaboration, the seven women they approached all created, we all created new works um, without communicating to each other what they were going to be. And we didn't see them until we were all in that space together. Um, so I think a, a reckoning with a coming back into a celebration of our bodies as beautiful, as not you know, ugly and um, defiled and represented incredibly poorly. Um, Liz O'Connor wrote, um, oh, I think it's Imagery of Aboriginal Women, um, just recently, it was released maybe last year or the year before. She's a white author and she documents all of the representation of Aboriginal women's bodies in newspaper cartoons. Um, where we are the lubra, the gin, the ugly, drunken, broken down, child losing, um, you know, um, wretch on the edge of society. And those images have absolutely persisted through current media all the way, all the through to the way that Andrew Bolt speaks about us and his current attack on Lydia Thorpe, who is, you know, Greens candidate in Northcote and one of the most fierce, intelligent, beautiful, proud Aboriginal women, just woman, full stop. Um, and he's attacking her identity. So it, it just continues. So we, I think what excites me is when I see our women, when I saw Tracy um, Moffat's work when I was 16 and saw a woman that looked a little bit like me and also had Chinese heritage like our family and she was referring to that and she was referring to violence and alcoholism and all of the factors that make up growing up on country up the bush and you're... You're very much surrounded. You do not have the comfort of any sort of um, um, intellectual spaces like galleries and museums to, to escape to in the bush when you grow up in those places. You know, there are pubs and schools and parks and there's the river, you know, and so all of that informed my work. And, and so our bodies and country are very interlinked and we need to keep celebrating them because it's a way of, you know, refuting all the propaganda about us, really. Thank you, um, everyone, for coming tonight. And uh, we can continue the conversation uh, now around drink or uh, next coming month. There's going to be a lot of um, discussions, uh, performance program. Uh, so please watch uh, on the newsletters and website um, for the program to be announced. Uh, please join me in thanking our um, speakers tonight. Thank you.